You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Reverend Enrique Ramos, Ph.D., is the dean of the General Lutheran Church. He currently works as an addictions therapist at the VA Caribbean Hospital in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Among other things, he has served as a Navy chaplain, been a theologian in residence, taught systematic theology and apologetics, and is serving as the Hispanic Ministry Coordinator for the Trinitarian Grace International Ministry. Welcome, Enrique Ramos, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today, and I thought we might just begin with a brief overview of what the General Lutheran Church is, and especially how it relates to a Christian view which anticipates the ultimate redemption of all people in Christ. Sure. Um, The General Lutheran Church is a small Lutheran denomination. It was um, organized in March 9, 2014, and incorporated in the state of Indiana in October 26, uh, 2017. The person who um, started the the denomination, his name is uh, James Clifton, Reverend James Clifton, uh, also a Lutheran minister. And he also believed in uh, universal redemption as well. Later on, uh, the address of incorporation passed to Puerto Rico when the church changed leadership, meaning uh, when I became the dean. The church was founded when uh, several Lutheran ministers from other bodies, Lutheran bodies, wanted to have a a denomination that had uh, some specific tenets, two specifically. One had to do with women's ordination, and the other one had to do with um, the belief on salvation. The Lutheran ministers who uh, afterwards uh, joined the General Lutheran Church after that meeting, uh, they all believe in universal redemption. And that's something that it's not covered in in Lutheran theology as a a whole. But that doesn't mean that there there can be an open door, we could say, for universal redemption in in Lutheranism, mm-hmm. since uh, Lutheranism believes that Christ did die for all, for the redemption of all, so we believe in the General Lutheran Church that uh, what the Lutheran churches need is to understand that all means all, and yes, God will redeem all in uh, in the long run. That's how the General Lutheran Church um, started as a whole. All ordained ministers in the GLC and General Lutheran Church need to hold to universal redemption because that's that's what is our main tenet. That's uh, th- that's our main topic, you know, to believe in in God who saves all. Well, tell me about how you were attracted to the General Lutheran Church. It all started. Um, when I, I started reading on universal redemption, I'll, I'll speak about that later on, but once I became convinced, I was looking for a confessional church that also held to universal redemption. 
when I mean confessional church, uh, I had been a Presbyterian since I was 16 and held to the uh, Presbyterian confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith and uh, the ones that are called uh, the Three Forms of Unity, uh, which are held by the Dutch and German Reformed churches, uh, Heidelberg Catechism and uh, the uh, Confession of Synod of Dort. And they hold to strict five points of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Um, once I understood later on, after being a, a Presbyterian minister, uh, ordained Presbyterian minister at a conservative uh, Presbyterian uh, denomination, once I realized of the biblical foundation of universal redemption, uh, I uh, left the denomination. There were other reasons as well, but I left the denomination. I started looking for a church that was confessional and held to universal redemption. That's when I found the General Lutheran Church. And I, after uh, talking with uh, Reverend James Clifton for some time, uh, I realized that that was the church for me. Why did I look for a confessional church, a church that held, in this case, Lutheran Church holds to the Book of Concord? And the reason for that is that I wanted to belong to a denomination um, that held to the tenets of the Church Universal, the Trinity, Christ alone for for uh, righteousness, and other tenets of the Church Universal or the Church Catholic which I was not seeing in other groups. Um, For example, um, I could never join a Unitarian Universalist church, not because I don't like them, but I am Trinitarian. Uh, They're Unitarian. And then there were other groups, but they they didn't belong to a denomination. And then there were other groups that, even though they believe in universal redemption, they were stating other things that were... uh, sort of close to the new age and and what have you so i wanted to join a denomination that held to the doctrines of the church catholic that were held in the uh, first five centuries um trinity the trinity uh, the incarnation the deity of christ christ being fully god and fully man at the same time and and those doctrines that held the church together so I found the General Lutheran Church, and then I, I, I joined. Then a uh, few years after that, uh, Reverend Clifton uh, decided to uh, uh, help at another uh, Lutheran denomination, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to be the dean. I said, yeah, I gladly uh, accepted uh, that uh, invitation, and here I am. Well, tell me a little bit about the relationship between the General Lutheran Church and other expressions of Lutheranism. Right. We're talking about the Lutheran uh, churches and the Lutheran church being as a confessional church. There are two ways of seeing the confessions. And I'm going to use two Latin words. One is kia and the other one the other one is quaternius. Kia means that the confessions that the ministers and those denominations accept the confessions as they are. And they they believe that what is written in uh, the Book of Concord uh, is uh, biblical. They don't accept anything else. While the Quotenius holds that ministers and members of the church can check the confessions and see which ones they believe they're biblical and then they can accept them. The General Lutheran 
church, it's right in the, in the middle, we would say. Like other confessional Lutheran churches, we hold to uh, the Book of Concord as the best expression of um, the biblical Christianity or the church Catholic. But uh, since we believe in universal redemption, we hold that position as uh, as interpretation or, or, or better biblical interpretation than the, the confession. But besides that, we are Lutheran church. We hold to um, everything that the Book of Concord states, the uh, need of uh, Christ alone for our righteousness, uh, righteousness by faith alone, the Bible as the foundation of our doctrine, Christ's real presence in, in uh, um, baptism and in uh, communion. Uh, and there's a reason for that, of course, uh, we hold to. But, uh, mm-hmm. and also very important that that was one of the things that caught my attention is that the Lutheran Church is very faithful quoting the, the fathers of Christianity, at least from the first five centuries. And that really caught my attention. Um, other confessions hold to the Bible alone, and, and they may mention the church father here and there, but not to uh, the plethora of the of, uh, the church fathers as a whole. And that's something that really caught my attention uh, with the Lutheran church. And that's one of the things that I believe the general Lutheran church holds in tune with uh, other Lutheran churches. It's been interesting to me as I have been investigating what I think of as Christian universalism or universal redemption, that it seems to me that, that, that I often run into Lutheran theologians or Lutheran pastors, and what they tell me, I, I, in some, I've interviewed Lars Sandbeck and Petri Tika, and what they all say is, in our tradition, we have several beliefs but there's some really strong ones that you, if you put them together, that kind of push the direction of universal reconciliation. So the idea that God is sovereign with regard to salvation is part of the Lutheran tradition. But also, as you said, the idea that Jesus has died for all and that God wants all to be saved can be found in some Lutheran confessions as well. Anyway, so there's this long history and there's all these different confessions. And so there are certain ways that you can put certain elements of Lutheranism together and you mm-hmm. kind of end up with a sort of a universal reconciliation idea. Right, right. Uh, specifically, the idea of Christ dying for all. I mean, and the reason for that... Uh, Which is different, so that's, and that's different than Calvinism. Oh, definitely so. When you compare uh, Calvinism and Lutheranism, uh, Calvinism, uh, the last point of the five points of Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints, I, I, I clash with it. Uh, since I, I learned about uh, uh, Calvinism. Not that I don't believe uh, that Christians are going to be preserved by God to salvation, but the idea of Christians having to persevere to know, really know that they're saved. I mean, that, that's it has been asked to uh, several uh, ordained ministers, well-known, and they say, well, how, I mean, if, God has chosen some people, and those people are the only ones to whom uh, Christ has died for. Uh, how do I really know that I'm chosen if I'm battling with such and such sin? And what uh, these uh, 
teachers, professors have stated, well, when you look at yourself and see the, your struggle with sin, then you really know that you're saved. But to me, it's kind of problematic because um, I may be having a problem with the guilt and, and, and I will never, never really know that I'm saved. Uh, because of that guilt, there there will uh, there will always be a, a question, a question mark. Am I really saved, or a problem with sin? Actually, uh, an addiction or something, and you cannot just shed away from you. Does that mean that you're not saved? Well, you know the problem that I have with that is that you're looking to your works to understand to know that you're you're saved and you're being sanctified. While Lutheranism says, well, since Christ died for all then you can be sure to say that Christ, I can be sure that to say, when I say Christ died for me, because he did. Christ did die for me. And what do I do when I have doubts? Well, Martin Luther said, well, look at my baptism, and it, which reminds me of Christ's baptism, where he united with uh, the whole humanity. Actually, it, it reminds me not only of his baptism, but uh, his incarnation, where he joined humanity in his divinity. They're not completely separated, but they're not, uh, uh, one does not rule over the other, or they, they, they don't uh, mingle together. They're two natures in Christ. They're different, but they're still there. To understand that, that Christ has united all humanity in him, meaning that he is inside of us and we're inside of him and we're inside of the Trinity. I mean, that's glorious. That's glorious. I can look at my baptism and say, yeah, I'm united to Christ. And, and every time I, have, uh, I may have doubts, I take the uh, communion. And by knowing that Christ is present in, in communion, uh, it's like Christ telling me, Yes, I am in you, you're in me, and to let you know, I'm going to give you another portion of my, uh, of my presence in you uh, by, by communion. I mean, it's, it's glorious. So what, you would, what would you say then about people who are, I mean, you said that Christians you know, can remember their baptism and have confidence that there is this union that they have with Christ. But from what I hear you saying, there's sort of a union with Christ and humanity that even precedes us knowing about it or understanding it or or accepting it right right uh it's all, it, all i mean christianity is christ and all the work and, and as christians what we should look at is the work of christ see in his incarnation what he did is that he, he united humanity in him so when uh he lived his holy life perfect life we live that perfect life in him while he was here sharing with humanity in a historical moment when he died on the cross well we died with him we died to sin uh, with him we died to death with him and we when he resurrected we resurrected with him and now he's sitting at the right hand of the father and we're sitting at the right hand of the father now so when i look at my baptism when i looked at uh communion it's God reminding me again and again and again, you know, when I doubt, when I'm going through any kind of sufferings, I am with you and I'm reminding you again and again and again. 
Well, tell me a little bit about, now let's back up a little bit. And you, you said you were going to maybe go back and tell us a little bit more. You've talked a little bit about Calvinism and the Presbyterian roots, but so kind of take us on that journey as you're growing up and what was your experience and as you came to understand, because uh, you came to understand Calvinism and then how you thought your way through that. So could you just sure. tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. It all started when I was about 16. I was born and raised Roman Catholic, but I uh, th- there were things in the Roman Catholic Church that, didn't, that I didn't agree with. Like, uh, for example, um, having to bow or to kneel before statues and whatever. I mean, I can understand what they represent and respect what they represent, but not bow and pray to them. That was the first thing that caught my attention when I was 16 and reading the Ten Commandments. You know, when it says, uh, do not make any any idol and, and, and bow to them and pray to them. So that was the first thing that got me away from the Roman Catholic Church. But then at 16 as well, I was um, reading the Bible and I read about the unpardonable sin. And at that time, what I understood was saying something bad to the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, that very moment with that thought passed, I, I was 16. I said, well, how about if I say this? <laughs> or if I think this about the Holy Spirit? I, I scared myself. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, dear, I've done it. And to me, the problem with the impartable sin was not that I could not repent. Oh, boy, I did. But what came to my mind was God, he holds up to his word. So when Christ said that whomever sins against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And uh, not in this time or the next. Then I realized what, what he was saying. But at the time it was like, so God, even though if he may want to forgive me, he can because he cannot lie. That that really destroyed me for oh, a long time. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I started uh, talking to um, some friends in uh, the youth group that I was going to. And some of them were studying and reading about the Reformed doctrine or, or Calvinist doctrine. And there I learned about assurance of salvation. God has chosen a few and if i believed in christ i was one of the chosen and my salvation was secure and uh, i held to that uh dearly after so that was good that was good news to you that you could say okay well here i am i've made the confession i've made my confession i obviously have all the spiritual desire that's probably a good indication that i'm one of the elect and if i'm right. one of the elect then that means God has chosen me for salvation. And so right. that means it's now it's God's business and I can, and I don't have to worry about it. I can, I still, I still want to strive. I still want to grow spiritually, right. but I don't have to worry about making some little mistake along the way. That's going to uh, disqualify right. me or cancel everything out. Right. Right. And that took me to, um, to seminary. It was, early mid 80s and that's where there was a big i don't know a big problem within uh, evangelicalism especially uh, within uh, 
two groups, the reform group and then the um, another group that it was like a, a grace only group, theological group. And uh, it all had to do with Lordship salvation. The Most of the Reformed people believe that to be really saved, you had to accept Christ as your Savior, but also as your Lord. Meaning that to really be a Christian, you had to at least have the desire to leave all your sins away and live a godly life. But then, again, uh, the doubt started coming to my mind. But how about if, uh, if I have this sin that I cannot take away. Um, for example, um, at the time, I was a puny guy, really. Uh, I was, uh, what, five, I'm 5'6", I'm five, but at the time I was weighing 115 pounds. Uh, well, I've always had the Chihuahua syndrome, meaning that I, uh, I had a very bad temper. And the more I try to uh, fight against it or control it, the I mean, it was even worse. And uh, when you're at a seminary where uh, everybody knows everything about theology and everybody is, in a, uh, is into apologetics and uh, you're trying to look over your shoulder not to be called a heretic. Yeah. I mean, really, <laughs> it got, things got rowdy there. So uh, I, was, I was really in shambles. And, and I, I wanted to know, I needed to know that I was really saved because I wasn't being able to control my um, mm-hmm. my emotions. And uh, to hear somebody say, well, look to yourself and look at your struggle. That's what tells you that you're a real Christian. I said, yeah, but that's not, that. no, that's that's not, that's not it. I mean, if, if you, if you have to accept Christ as Lord, as well as your Savior, and uh, you, I mean, holiness is part of your salvation, in a sense, because it assures you that you're saved. Then I don't. I really don't know that I'm saved. From there, I I started also listening to uh, other groups that came from the um, uh, reform camp. Uh, it was a group of ministers that joined, and they they were called Auburn Theology. And what they were saying was that works were also important for your salvation. I mean, to be to be righteous. And that was a, another big, big struggle in, in many Reformed churches. And what I saw was, okay, they stated that these people were not according to the reform, what they believe was the Reformed faith. But their answer was always, yeah, but the confessions tell us that we know that we are righteous if we are righteous. I never, never found a good answer to what, to what uh, the Auburn theologians were saying. Not, not from these other conservative uh, Presbyterian churches. And then I started seeing that some, not all, but some uh, had joined the Roman Catholic Church. Because it, if... Right, your righteousness is important for your assurance of salvation. They might as well go back to Rome, and that that, that was something that, that was really I don't know I, I, had me in so many doubts. From there, I changed my position, saying, "Well, it's not perseverance of the saints because I end up looking at me mm-hmm. as a person. 
it's, in the long run, righteousness has to do with my human response. So it's not Christ. It's not righteousness by faith in what Christ has done. Is in the long run, it's on me and my righteousness. So that got me to another quest. I started reading um, the articles uh, from the Grace Evangelical Society, and from there I started reading Bobby Gross' uh, blog, uh, the Evangelical Calvinist, who held uh, he holds to the theology of T.F. Torrance, who says that we're all chosen in Christ. But when he says we're all, he means all humanity is chosen in Christ. And now our assurance is in Christ's incarnation and everything that he went through when he was here with us in history. Uh, and that's our assurance, that Christ's incarnation, that we're united in Christ, that made sense. And from there, I started thinking, this sounds like universalism. I wonder if there is a Christian, because w- what I knew about universalism was uh, mm-hmm. secular universal. Right. redemption or, or salvation the, the many many roads to uh, to heaven and it doesn't matter which road you take right. you're going to end up in heaven anyways and i said no no that's not me that's that's not the gospel i started wondering if there was something that was called christian universalism and yes there was uh that's when i started reading uh jerry buchman's uh, hope beyond hell and started reading a uh, Peter Hyatt and, and listening to his sermons, I ended up, uh, to make a long story short, I ended up in the General Lutheran Church because that, uh, to me, that's the whole gospel. It's not that other churches don't have the gospel, but it's what I would say is the most biblical and mm-hmm. universal belief uh, of rendering the gospel. Sometimes I tell people that, that in my journey, what happened is that grace was a big part of my theology, then it was a bigger part of my theology, and then finally, it just became all of my theology, that every that I saw that finally everything was grace. The response exactly. that I make, the ability to think, it being alive, God at work in me, that I really didn't want to, to take credit for anything. All I wanted to do was participate in the goodness that was being shown to me. Once I did that, it was really nice because I stopped obsessing about myself. I stopped, you know, if I had something that was bothering me, I would think to myself, well, God is bigger than this thing that's bothering me. And God will ultimately, God will ultimately make sure that it doesn't have a victory over me. So if God is going to win in the end, why don't I just win with God right now? It just gave me a lot of confidence, kind of like a little kid you know, learning to ride a bike, it's like, well, I don't have to worry that my Heavenly Father is not is going to abandon me. I'll learn to ride the bike sooner or later, so I might as well just not worry about it and just kind of enjoy it and go along with it and, and feel His support and strength and power in my life. Anyway, that gave me, that took the focus, it made me stop thinking about myself and my own weakness, and it made me think about God's right. power and provision and strength. Exactly. Well, when you... Go ahead. Exactly. That's. Go ahead. Okay. Well, go on, when go you ahead, start thinking about Christian universalism, I know one of the, what happened to me was there are certain passages of scripture that just sort of leaped out to me in ways that 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 they hadn't leaped out to me before, and I wondered if you kind of had that experience too. Oh yes. Uh, where do I start? 
Well, uh, the the first um, first passages that, uh, that that come to mind uh, are Romans five and and First Corinthians uh, fifteen, which, uh, according to Paul, that is the gospel. In uh, Adam all die, and in Christ all live. Now, I've I've heard Calvinists state, oh well, but it's in Christ. It doesn't mean really mean all, uh, just the chosen, but. That's not what the, the the chapters state. I mean, if we're all fallen in Adam, whatever fallen means, I have a different perspective now on, on, on uh, what does it mean having a fallen nature. But if, if we're all fallen in Adam, I mean, Christ is the last Adam. So does that mean that Christ did a, a, a less better job than Adam did? I mean, let's face it. We're talking mm-hmm. about God here. Does this mean that, that Christ is not, powerful enough to save all or that God is not powerful to save all because he has to submit to his idea of predestination. I mean, it comes to the point of saying, well, can God create a rock uh, so so heavy that he cannot lift? Well, in this case, this sounds about the same thing. He has created a, a, a philosophical view that he cannot Control. I mean, Talbot states it clearly. Uh, Thomas Talbot. I mean, does God is God all powerful? But yes, the Bible says it. Is God all loving? Yes, the Bible also says it. I mean, uh, Christ dying for the world, uh, God wanting to save the world. So many passages mm-hmm. stated right there. But then when it comes to hell, um, then you have a the problem with. Uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. I mean, Calvinists say, yeah, God is powerful, but he he, he cannot well, save. He's decided, uh, he, he's decided he, not he to. He could do it, but he's decided not to. Right. He just doesn't want to. And on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, Arminians say, well, yeah, he, he would love to save everybody, but it depends on us. If we accept him, we're not. So he's not powerful. So in the long run, he ends up not being God in any of those Two positions. I, I hate to say it, but that's that's how it sounds to me. Well, in universalism, you can hold to the verses that says that yeah, Christ died for all. God wants to save all, and then at the same time, yeah, He has chosen all in Christ to be saved. So He can He can bake His uh, His cake and eat it too. <laughs> now, earlier you said that that one of the things that attracted you to Lutheranism was that there was uh, some attention or a good bit of attention paid to the early church fathers and the early centuries of the church. And what did it mean to you that, that when you found out that there was some, uh, some pretty uh, strong support for universal reconciliation in the early, in the early church fathers in the early centuries of the church? Oh, that, that was also something that really, really caught my attention. When I, uh, I realized, well, first of all, when I started reading, uh, Church history. See, I, my my master's in theology is in in the his, history of dogmatics. So it's not just church history; is how theology started touching the lives of the fathers of the church in in, in, in throughout the the years, especially the first uh, five centuries. But when I started reading Athanasius and I started reading uh, other fathers of the church, uh, stating right there. You know that that Christ uh, uh, had uh, died for 
for all. And, and that there was such a thing of, uh, called apocatastasis, which means that not only the human race is going to be saved, but whole creation will become new again. You know, um, Colossians, the first two chapters in Colossians is stated right there. You know, those, those things really, really started making sense. Then I knew that I wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the church fathers um, <laughs> held that doctrine. I also, after reading uh, Ilaria Ramelli on origin, he wasn't a, her- a heretic after all. There are, the, 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 in the fifth century, what uh, the church was against was originis- uh, originism, which was not origin. He, he had died, or, died already. But it was a wrong idea that his uh, students picked up stating that, oh, there are incarnate souls that come to earth and then they have some sort of evolution that they go through and reincarnation until they join back to God. But that's not what uh, Origins taught. And none of the other uh, church fathers uh, who believed in in, uh, universal redemption, like uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, or Athanasius, and and those fathers were were not singled out as heretics. I mean, they they were some of those church fathers were the ones who fought for the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation, and against heresies like Arianism, which believed that Christ was not God. Uh, other heresies, and they were not singled out as heretics. I, even more, uh, when you read church historians that say that. There were six schools in, in, in Christianity in the first five centuries, and uh, four of them held to universal redemption or apocatastasis. One held to the soul sleep, like uh, the, uh, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, and only one, and that was the Western Church that held to a hellfire that lasted for eternity. Uh, because of uh, um, the teachings of, uh, of St. Augustine, who had his own strange ideas. Uh, you know, I can't be that wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Well, speaking, uh, speaking uh, of being wrong, you know, so you've gone through this journey, you've, you've debated in the Calvinist seminary, you've thought through all these things, you've studied the early, you studied the early church fathers, you've, you've studied the scriptures, so you're starting to feel pretty confident about all of this. But then you run into people, and they are just surprised that a minister would believe that God was ultimately going to save everybody because doesn't the Bible say there's a heaven and a hell, and God is going to put some people in hell forever and some people in heaven forever? And it seems like as a minister, you should know about that. And so how does that—what are some of the concerns that people raise with you, and how do you respond to them? Well, um, uh, recently there was a pastor, not that long ago, actually— about this past month, uh, we've known each other for for years since we were in college, and we weren't really really friends, but we knew each other. And, and now he's an ordained pastor in a, in a conservative Presbyterian church. And oh boy, what he said, he called me heretic right off the bat. Even though I was a Lutheran, I was not uh, holding to Luther's position on hell, which is interesting because when you read about Luther and his position, he held most of his life to soul sleep, even though there is, and I can't find now the, when he wrote it, he wrote, a, I believe he wrote a letter to a friend, and the way that he was speaking was 
literally more in tune with universal redemption. But he never, I mean, he never really held to hell. I mean, he believed in, in Solstice in the beginning uh, of his journey uh, from uh, Rome. And then uh, his old days before he died, he, he, he didn't hold to uh, to doctrine of hell. And then there are others, there are other uh, uh, ministers who uh, may not hold to universal redemption, but they're not holding to hell either. The book, The Fire That Consumes by Ed Fudge, even though he talks about soul sleep. But then you have other ministers, even from the reform camp, who have problems with hell, and they don't believe in, in, in hell anymore. That really start, mm-hmm. you know, gets you thinking. The idea that of, of hell in, in the New Testament, well, so many people say, well, the one who talked more about hell was Christ himself. Uh, he was talking about Gehenna. Well, when you read Matthew 24 and 25, at least the way I, I, uh, I read it, you have to take into consideration to whom he was speaking, the historical reasons why he was saying what he was saying to understand what Gehenna meant. Well, Christ was talking not only to his disciples, but to other people who were around him when uh, they went to visit the temple. And they were talking about the wonders of the temple and how beautiful it was. And Christ said, well, this temple is going to be destroyed. And not only a temple is going to be destroyed, but the whole Jerusalem and the temple are going to end up like in the valley of Gehenna, where they used to, where the idolaters had to, used to burn babies for uh, uh, God Moloch to make him happy. So, and it was a never-ending fire until it, it ended, until it finished. So it was not a never-ending fire, but it was something that was going to end once it burned what it had to, earn, to burn. So when Christ was talking about Gehenna, what he was saying is that the city and the temple and, and all those things that the Israelites needed to be closer to God were going to be destroyed. There was not going to be any more need for those because everybody, like Christ uh, told the Samaritan woman, everybody will worship God in spirit and truth. And where do we see that? When Colossians uh, 1, it says that uh, God, the Trinity, is going to be inside of us. And of course, we're inside of God. So we are the temple now. When Matthew 24 and 25 is talking about Gehenna is not talking about never-ending fire in hell, but it's talking about a place, a literal place, where things were burned there, uh, probably garbage or whatever, and uh, that was going to be the end of Jerusalem and the temple. Gehenna, right now, the, the Valley of uh, Hinnom is a place where people go on, in, in, on campings. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place. And, and it's Interesting because I, I I saw in YouTube a Jewish rabbi said, and he was saying I am in hell because <laughs> he was in the Valley of Hinnom. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, right. And the interesting thing is how God took that valley and changed it into a beautiful place. Now, now this is interesting because people use First Peter when it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in First Peter says that they went through that as an example of what is going to happen to the people who deny 
God or the Messiah or, or the ones who are not saved. Now, when you read Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that, yeah, okay, I, I have the verses right here. Second uh, Peter 2, 6, for, uh, sorry, is it? And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Second Peter. That's Yeah, that's Second Peter 2, 6. And it's plain and simple, right? But then you have to go to Ezekiel 16, uh, 53. And it's interesting because God is talking to Israel, but then he uses Sodom as an example. And this is what God says, Ezekiel 16, 53. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them. And he's talking to Israel. Now, when we read Romans, and I was sharing this with another person who was trying to convince me out of universal redemption. See, well, first you read this in Ezekiel. And it's talking about nations that are not Jewish. But then when you read Romans chapters 9 to 11, it's talking about, yeah, Israel is lost now. And Paul wishes to... Uh, uh, lose his salvation, if he could do that, lose his salvation, mm -hmm. so Israel would be saved. And now there's a, a small group of Jewish people, a remnant, who uh, believe in the Messiah. But then, right at the end of uh, uh, Romans 11, it says, but things are not going to end up that way, because all Israel will be saved. Exactly the same thing that Ezekiel 16 is saying. You know, you're going through hardships. You, you, you're not worshiping, uh, worshiping me the way you, that, that, that you're supposed to do. You're going to go through destruction. But just like Sodom and Samaria and her daughters, I will restore your fortunes well, along with them. I have, uh, I have just found so many scripture passages and good ways to answer people when I answer people about Christian universalism, it's not by retreating from the scriptures. It's by going to scriptures and just pointing in, pointing lots of different passages out that they haven't ever looked at before. And the reason they didn't look at it before is because it didn't go with their theology. But people, yeah, but, but people are so right, often surprised right. that I can make a strong uh, scriptural argument. Now, another question that comes up is that they'll say, well, okay, I thought that the gospel was the good news that you could be saved and you could be, be excused from going to hell forever and be separated from God forever in hell. Well, if nobody is going to ultimately be separated from God forever in hell, then what's the gospel? How do you answer that question? What is, what is the gospel? How do you think about that now? The gospel is Christ. Uh, again, you have to read first Corinthians 15 and Romans five. And that those are not the only verses, but when you, I mean, read those verses, I mean, it, they're so explicit. I mean, you need Christ. You need to put your faith in Christ because we're all saved in Christ. I mean, Christ was perfect. Uh, he was like, uh, like Adam. He was representing the, the human race. Uh, he lived a holy life and uh, he united us to him. So in him, in him, we, live a holy, we lived a holy life when he was here on earth. Uh, he was the only one who kept the law perfectly. So in him, we, uh, we also uh, live according to the law perfectly. Uh, he was the only one who died and, and rose again and, and defeated death. 
And in him, since we've united in him, to him, in him, we also won the battle against sin and death. He is the one who is sitting in the right hand of the Father. And since we're in him, we are sitting in the right hand of the Father. So he finished everything and he saved up creation as a whole. So now we don't have to live with fear of God. Because really, when, it, when, when you're looking at yourself and at your life as having to be holy, completely holy, or at least holy enough to be saved, you're always afraid of, oh, mm-hmm. doing something wrong and God's going to get me. Uh, well, I'm going to get it now. Am I really saved? No. When you realize that we're all saved in Christ, now you have the freedom to do good. Not for the sake of going to heaven and, 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 and not going to hell, but you're doing good because you love your Father, your Heavenly Father who loved you first. I mean, I, I cannot think about doing something wrong, even though I, I, I do all the time, but at least not consciously because I love my father. Also, some people say, well, you know, are you saying that God is going to twist everybody else's arm, you know, to save them? I said, no, no. Uh, but God is going to convince everybody like he did to you or to me when we didn't care about the gospel, when we didn't care about God. And I always, always use an example and uh, my wife Maggie is not here, so I, I, she's not. I'm not going to put her on the spot, even though she's gonna, she's going to listen to this. But anyways, I use this example. Maggie and I have known each other since we were in high school. We kind of liked each other, but I was in 12th grade, she was in nine, and I was I thought of myself as a mature man at the time, and I didn't care for a child <laughs> <laughs> like like Maggie, a ninth grader, please. So I went to college, and uh, then I went to seminary. And one of my visits to college, because I was uh, uh, was visiting my friends there, uh, college here in Puerto Rico, uh, I saw her. And uh, we started talking, and then we started going out. One of those semesters that I, I believe was a summer, that I came back to Puerto Rico, I had gone through a grueling final exams. Three days of <laughs> hell. <laughs> And uh, I came here straight to the doctor. I came here to Puerto Rico straight to the doctor. I was underweight. I wasn't sleeping well. And uh, Maggie was really, really concerned about that. So she came to my parents' house. I was staying at my parents' at the house uh, at the time in, in their house. And she brought a bag of chocolate chip cookies that she made herself. She's a wonderful cook. Um, but she made those because she thought that well, she could not heal me because she wasn't a doctor. So at least she could help me with uh, mm-hmm. something sweet. Well, since at the time I was in Philadelphia and she was here in Puerto Rico, we didn't have the uh, computers or cell phones. To make long story, that part of the long story short, uh, we broke up because we were so far apart. 30 years passed. We had not seen each other, really. We had not seen each other for uh, those 30 years. After 30 years, I, I had gone through a divorce. Maggie had gone through a divorce. And I sat before my computer, and I remember that somebody five years before my divorce had sent me a message 
saying, there is this guy, he's an atheist, and he's, um, um, uh, he's uh, so full of himself, and he's saying that uh, he wants to have debates with every pastor because he knows that he was go- is going to win the debate. But I know that you, since I had, uh, my forte was apologetics, but I know that you can take him up. But I was, I was so down at the time, things weren't going well, and I didn't really pay attention to, the, uh, to that message. Didn't check out who wrote it. Didn't know the name because it was a it was a nickname. But I didn't erase it either. So thirty years after, well, five years after after that message, I sat in front of a computer and the thought came into my mind: Who was that person who wrote? Huh? So I searched in the messages, and when I clicked that uh, the Facebook page. Lo and behold, it was Maggie. I sent her a message right there. Uh, she was online. She messaged back, and I said, "Well, uh, what 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 are you doing? What's uh, what's new with you?" And she said, "Well, you know, married and things didn't work out." So it was same here. Can I call you? I said, "Okay, fine. What's your number?" And she said, "Well, the same." And I remember that that phone number with the chocolate chip cookies that I never forgotten. I mean, it was not only the sweetness of the of the cookies, but the sweetness of her actions that haunted me for all those thirty years. And I call her, and we're married. But I use that as an example of God's love. He will chase you lovingly, and He will chase you. He will chase you until. Just can't fight that love. You know, you have to bow down and, and, and accept Christ is God, his Lord, is my Savior, is my loving uh, God who's looking for me. Well, that's a beautiful story that, that you know, because that, that talks a lot about grace and, and just that this is not anything that you did. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It just came. It came to you, and and it never and it never right. left you, until finally you understood it. But it, no. it but it was patient with you. It never forced its. Yeah, it was patient with you until you finally recognized what it was. Let me ask you how you understand the concept then of judgment and wrath, the judgment and the wrath of God. How oh, does that work out in your theology? I see that judgment is is God's way of shedding off what keeps us away from him it's interesting but because when people read revelation and they read about the uh the lake of uh, fire and brimstone and if you read it just like that it's oh there you go mm-hmm. you have it hell right there but when you check out what fire was used for at that time and what brimstone was used at the time and suffer also what it was used at the time because you have fire and brimstone and and fire and and sulfur, you find that fire was used to cleanse, I mean, utensils of the doctrine when they weren't going to do an operation. They had to pass them through the fire to cleanse them. When you had to make a sword, still today, the metal has to go through fire so you can make a sword out of it and make something useful of that piece of metal. When when you had to clean something of metal, you used fire. And you did it. It wasn't clean until you could see your your face in it, like a mirror. When uh, you use uh, sulfur, sulfur was used to cleanse houses, cleanse them from the bugs. 
brimstone was used to cleanse uh, metals to see if uh, to see their purity and see if for example if it was gold to see if it was real gold or if it was a uh, uh, fake so all those images have to do with cleansing not with torture interestingly enough when you read in revelation about the sea of fire you see that it's dividing the people of God from the rest of the nations. But even at that time, the church is telling the nations, come, come. But to come, they had to go through the fire to go to the other side. So they had to go through the fire to be cleansed and join the people of God. And then after that, you see the kings of of every nation bowing to Christ. That's what fire does. Cleanses and to bring to bring us back. First Corinthians uh, stated when it says, well, there's only one foundation and it's Christ, but then you have to be careful of how you build over that. You can build with uh, gold, silver, or, or precious stones, or you can build with garbage. And well, if you build with garbage, you'll have to go through, I mean, when the building goes through fire, uh, the ones that uh, 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 have built with garbage, I mean, they will be saved, but they're going to lose their building. Meaning we can do with our lives whatever we want to, but in the long run, we're going to have to go through judgment. And we will be saved, but we can lose it all. I mean, it has happened with people in the ministry. Wonderful, awesome ministries, and they have lost it all so they can win Christ. Or people who are not Christians who have to gun through so much hardship. So they One of the things that I have seen in life is that sometimes people get so, they get so discouraged that they get into addictions. And then they start to believe that mm-hmm. because their addiction has taken over, that God, there's no way then that God could ever love them. And it, it just becomes this, and they start to think, well, uh, I could never be good enough to earn God's love. And then they just finally just sort of give up and they, they, they just let the addiction run away with mm-hmm. them. Uh, but then finally, sometimes they get in mm-hmm. just such horrible pain with it that they're, that they're willing to reach out. If there's a God that they could maybe believe in, I know you've done a lot of addictions counseling, and I also know you have this perspective and I'm wondering how this works in with your understanding of the God who is with you, even in your darkest moments and who won't fail you in the, in the, in the challenges that people have in addiction recovery. There is uh, a picture of this man who is an addict and uh, he has um, a tourniquet in his arm and he is uh, putting an injection of heroin probably in his vein. But then when you look closer, you see Christ behind him and the arm where he's putting the, uh, shooting the drug is Christ's arm. What I, the way I see Christ is that he came to earth and he endured every single thing that, I mean, he, he joined us in, in, in our darkest moments. Even at that moment, when the person cannot control his addiction, Christ is with him. Christ is suffering with him. 
because he is in him and he is in Christ. He's not alone. He may think about it. He may think that he's alone with his addiction, but Christ is there. He, if he can only understand that, that would be the first thing for his recovery because he knows that even in his suffering, he's not alone. And Christ will help him uh, go through his addiction and heal him. Because in the long run, that's what Christ did. The church father says that a nature that is not assumed is a nature that is not healed. So what Christ did was that exactly. He came into our darkest hours. He took upon himself our pain, our sin, rejections from other people, even our rejections of ourselves. He took it all. And he healed it on the cross in his resurrection. And to understand that now the Father doesn't only see me as sinless or saved, but I am sitting right at his right hand. And he's looking at me in the same way. And this is why I say, look at your baptism. The same way that in Christ's baptism, the Father said, behold, this is my son whom i love we are we were in christ at that moment we're in christ at this moment and god looks at us no matter how and he says this is my son and i love him and he'll do whatever he can to take us away from our sins and 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 everything that hurts us everything that keeps us away from him i mean it's it's that is the gospel that is good news god will never tire until well, the, the interesting back. thing about that uh, is that um, is that what you're saying is is that God is with us in our darkest moments and doesn't give up, but God is not interested in just delivering from our darkest moments. But God wants to take us to the very heights to show us what it's like when we are when we're finally freed from every illusion, every everything that holds us back, and to experience into experience what it is like what that is like too and so to me that plays into spiritual growth and formation too oh yes yes i mean imagine i mean god the bible states that god came i mean christ well god incarnate came here to save us from sin and from death if he came to save us from sin, that means that he will not tire until he saves us from our sin. How is he going to do it? I don't know, but he's going to do it, and he get us away from. And I've and I've seen it, you know, uh, uh, in patients that I, that I see, uh, especially the ones who uh, join twelve uh, step groups, and they learn this uh, spirituality of a God that doesn't hate them but wants to save them. And it's interesting. I mean, they're not really preaching the gospel to them, but they're showing them a God who is interested in, in getting them out of their addiction. And when they understand that, they're freed because they learn of a God who loves them and who will never tire, but he will always be there chasing them with love until mm -hmm. they give up their addiction or their nature or whatever. I mean, that is the gospel. That is the good news. I mean, to compare that with a quote-unquote gospel of fear, 
I mean, God loves you, but if you don't love him back, he's going to hate you forever. Oh, no, no, wait. Not only he's not going to hate you. Oh, I mean, he's going to hate you forever. He'll torture you forever because you didn't love him. And you compare that with a God who will chase after you forever until you give up. <laughs> you know, God doesn't have time. He has all the time in the world to chase after you. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who get tired. And, you know, like like a little child when, a, when the father is chasing him. You know, the father has longer legs. He has uh, more endurance. And the child will tire. You know, will mm -hmm. get tired and he'll give up. And then the father will embrace him and, and, and show him his love. At the same time, he says, gotcha. <laughs> I know. And, and I think we're... I really appreciated your time. I think we're kind of, we've covered a lot of ground and I think maybe I'd kind of like to wind up and talking a little bit about it, it's, it's, it can be hard. People can get really depressed these days because you look around and there's lots to be discouraged about. Mm -hmm. And, and we see a lot of not good news around us and, and the future looks in a lot of ways, looks kind of bleak. There's the climate issues, mm -hmm. which we're all experiencing. There's political uncertainty. There's economic uncertainty we can see when we look on television and when we look on the internet we can see a lot of anger a lot of frustration uh, a lot of upset people there's we have a lot of gun violence at least in the united states there's all kinds of these things that are that just seem so overwhelming that that if that's your picture going forward it can really be depressing and so how do you see this this idea of a, a apocatastasis or a the restoration of the entire creation being important to keep us hopeful and positive, even in the midst of all the troubles that we're having right now. When I think about everything that is happening right now in the world, I think of, of my the classes that I was taking in school, science classes. Uh, and they spoke of homeostasis, meaning the world creation sometimes may go one side or the other and lose its balance. But in the long run, the balance will come back. And uh, we don't understand how that balance comes about. For example, uh, tornadoes or um, floods or you name it, tsunamis. But, I mean, when we look at those things from afar, we see nature coming back into its balance. Now, interesting about those things is that we live in an egotistical world. People care for themselves. We care for ourselves only. And we care for others if they, if, I, if we're going to get something from them. Sometimes we don't even know who our neighbors are. But every time that there is something like a disaster happens, people start looking at their brother and helping them. So there's also an homeostasis of the people when they start caring for each other. Am I in favor of, of, of catastrophes? No. Am I in favor of, uh, of, of, of people going to schools and shooting the students? No. But what gives me hope is those people who die are in a better place. And God also went through their pain and their fear. They weren't alone. Christ himself was killed by us. God was killed by us. So he knows. He's not a God who is way up there, who doesn't have any feelings for us. He went through that. He went 
through pain. But then he resurrected, and now those people are not in pain anymore. But then there is more. Apocatastasis, what it means is that everything will be made new. And we will live forever. And this is a forever, a real forever. We'll live forever in love and in bliss, all sharing, even the people who have who have gone before our Savior before us. We're going to see him again. We're going to enjoy their presence again. Even our pets. Sorry. <laughs> I shared this uh, with a group of, of, of pastors, and one time they just they were shaking their heads. They're you nuts. No, but they, I mean, if all creation is going to be made new, we're going to see our pets as well, you know, and, and we're going to play with them again forever. You know, everything will be new. And that's the real homeostasis that we're looking for. And then we're going to see everybody caring for everybody. Not like now, that we have to be pushed to do it. We have to be in, in need to do that. But it'll come a time when we will just love the same way that we're loved by God. There are so many things that we can get discouraged about. But the more I've reflected on universal restoration, and I even think back at the, the early church fathers, they were believing in universal restoration during Roman persecution. You know, so, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of universal restoration didn't come about because the world was was so nonviolent and loving and wonderful. They saw something in Christ that they thought pointed not only to the salvation of all people, but to the restoration of all of creation. And they had this amazing vision and it flourished in the early centuries of the church. And so I just feel a sense of, for, for me, you know, th this is kind of a revival that, we're, that, that the best, that the best of the, what happened in the early centuries of the church, their insights. Now we're, we're kind of getting past what I think is sort of the dark ages of uh, sort of the uh, medieval kind of theology. We're kind of now starting getting past that. Mm -hmm. And maybe not everybody has gotten to universal restoration yet, but a lot more people are having questions about this doctrine of eternal torment. That that just makes less and less sense to people. Mm -hmm. And so I do see a, a kind of a, a gradual progress or movement towards a better thinking. And then, you know, I talk to people like you and you're very well theologically educated. You've been through all the arguments. You've seen all a lot of the st same things that I've seen, and you come to this conclusion. So I think, well, if you're coming to this conclusion mm -hmm. and I'm coming to this conclusion, so many people are starting to see this, that this isn't something that I'm orchestrating or making up. This is just something that I'm happening, and I'm so glad and that I get to be a part of it and to get to meet people like you and to share in these conversations and to, I guess, to encourage people that this is real that this this is really happening right. it's not a makeup thing we're not just we're not just new age people that are inventing some kind of new christianity we're really recovering and restoring an original vision of the faith which can be so powerful and trans transformative today oh yeah and actually now that you mentioned this thing about new age one of the things that this pastor accused me was exactly that that i was uh, gonna end up uh forsaking Christ and all that because I didn't believe in, in, in salvation in Christ. No, it's the other way around. Actually, you mentioned um, the church fathers. In the Council of Nicaea, you have many, many of, of, of people who had been persecuted 
um, by the, the, the Roman and, and, and the Empire and the uh, Jewish people as well. And you could see their scars. I mean, you could see people who didn't have uh, one eye or didn't have an arm or a leg. And they stuck to the gospel. Again, four out of six schools on, on, on the theory of redemption believe in universal salvation. So, I mean, what an example. I mean, they knew, they knew that everything in creation was going to be make new. They knew that everybody was going to be saved. And yet they went to the Council of Nicaea to fight for the, for the faith, you know, and it wasn't, it had not been easy, but they were still fighting for the faith. The other thing that it's very important is, again, what the church fathers fought for was the Trinity and the Incarnation. It's very important to hold on to those because otherwise we're, we're going to end up New Age or whatever. Because, of course, New Age says, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're united to the divinity, but we are so united that we're part of it in a sense that you end up having a, a, a something that is not personal you're not i mean your divinity is not personal not personal because it's uh, the amalgamation of other people um and you end up not being personal either i mean when you for example in other beliefs for example um buddhism you have to finish all those reincarnations to end up uniting with the spirit but the spirit is not personal so it's nothing really in your personality ends up Right, it's just about escaping suffering. So, yes, yes. While in Christ, we are united to God, but in the incarnation, he has his full man, so humanity is in him, but he's full God, 100% God at the same time. But those two natures don't mix and make another nature, but they're not separated to the point that Christ is only man or Christ is only God, which... Uh, that was uh, those were the heresies that that uh, happened in the, in the first five centuries in Christianity. So yes, we are united to God in Christ, but we do not become God. God doesn't become us to the point of not being God. But in the incarnation, God is still God. We're still people, but we are united to God, and we will never be separated. From God. Also, very important to see when I, I learned about universal redemption, I saw the death of Christ different. Now I don't see a father that is always angry at us or a God that is always angry at us. And like Santa Claus, making a list, checking twice to see who has been naughty or nice. And if you're naughty, you go to eternal hell. You don't get toys, but you go to eternal hell. No, we don't see a, a son, a Christ as a son, who is getting battered by the father and tortured by the father on the cross because he's taking the father's hate towards us. No, we see the whole Trinity uh, joining us with him in the incarnation and Christ saving us from our sin because in the long run, it's not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but a loving God in the hands of angry sinners who died, joined us with him, and rose again to rise us all. Uh, well, that's again. a beautiful that's a beautiful vision. I, I want to thank you for um, taking your time 
today and and for your ministry and and sharing all of this um, encouragement with us. I just wish you well in your continuing ministry and your journey. And uh, I look forward to the next time that we get to visit together. Sure. Uh, one more thing. Uh, the General Lutheran Church is uh, open uh, for uh, people who would uh, like to uh, minister with us. So if you're interested, just let us know and you'll go through our, our okay. school, uh, ministerial school. Well, yeah, how, 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 how would somebody we, we, how would we, somebody get in touch with the General Lutheran Church? Um, we have a, a website, generallutheranchurch.org, and uh, there you have uh, uh, my email, so you can contact me and, and uh, find out if, if you, you know if you feel the calling to to the ministry, and especially uh, sharing uh, the the gospel of universal redemption. We're here. We're not alone. All right. Well, thank you, Enrique, for sharing all of this with us. Look forward to the next time that we visit. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.